What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. James Bond. We both eradicate people to make the world a better place. I just want to be a little tidier. That's Rami Malek as Bond villain Lucifer Safin, calmly explaining his plans for an underwater civilization. Well done with Lucifer. You got the wrong Bond villain, though, Josh. Malik does play nemesis to Daniel Craig's 007 in the new No Time to Die, Craig's fifth and final go at the role. This week, we've got a review. Plus, our Jane Campion series continues with The Portrait of a Lady, starring Nicole Kidman. That and more. Now, in my defense, there is a plain Marine in this one. Mm, ahead on film spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. Last week, Josh, we got to revisit Jane Campion's The Piano as part of our Campion Oeuvre review. The winner of three Oscars and still regarded as the director's masterpiece, we agreed that it more than holds up nearly 30 years later. Much to your delight, I came around on your beloved The Piano. I love to see it. But it's also true that Campion has failed to reach that same level of success again. And this week... We start on the part of her career that lives in the shadow of her early success. We're going to talk about 1996's period drama, The Portrait of a Lady. Those Oscars, though, definitely allowed Campion to assemble a pretty darn good cast. We'll get to that later in the show. But first, come, come, film spotting listeners. We finally have a No Time to Die review. James, fate draws us back together. Now your enemy is my enemy. His name is Safin. And what does he want? Revenge. Me. When her secret finds its way out, it'll be the death of you. You can imagine why I've come back to play. On my way to see No Time to Die this weekend with Debbie, I'd already seen it, but she hadn't, and she wasn't going to miss Daniel Craig's farewell, I realized that I'd better catch her up on the plot to Spectre, Craig's previous Bond installment. Unlike most Bond films, No Time to Die functions as a fairly direct sequel to what came before. After a gripping flashback prologue that's intriguingly Bond-less, we catch up with the retired James and Lea Seydoux's Madeline Swan, his Spectre paramour, on a romantic jaunt to an Italian village. Their ideal doesn't last long, however, as ghosts from both of their pasts, Christoph Waltz returning as Blofeld, and Rami Malek as new criminal mastermind Lutzfer Safin intrude. Such connections in serial narratives have been a hallmark of the five films that have starred Craig as Bond. In fact, No Time to Die, directed by Kerry Joji Fukunaga from a screenplay by Fukunaga, Neil Purvis, Robert Wade, and Phoebe Waller-Bridge, is even intimately connected with Craig's first outing, Casino Royale, including, as it does, a visit to the grave of Bond's lover-slash-betrayer in that movie, Vesper Lind. All of this to say, Adam, that the recent batch of Bond films have been unusually cohesive, connected, cinematic universe in fact. And as we know from the various phases of the MCU, a cinematic universe needs a vision and a plan. So what I'm curious about 
as we look back on this era now, is what, to your mind, the overall project has been for Craig's five-film run? What was its thesis or its mission? And to bring us to our review, does No Time to Die satisfactorily complete that mission for you? There is something a little endgame-y about No Time to Die, right? I think so. we, We could maybe get into that a little bit more, perhaps in a spoiler-filled section of this review. But my perspective on how this all connects or doesn't connect really doesn't extend much beyond the bookends here. I did rewatch Quantum of Solace, the second Craig installment, but I'm really going off rewatching Casino Royale twice and now No Time to Die. Otherwise, legitimately, (laughs) the sum total of what I remember about Spectre and Skyfall is... One of them has an opening that revolves around the Day of the Dead, and I remember Bond getting shot on a train. I do not know which opening goes with which title. I remember a weird scene with Javier Bardem in some kind of courtyard, maybe. Yeah, and similar and to the big, layer here, actually, now yeah, that I think bit. about it. Yep, and a big manor house where I think Christoph Waltz is having... A meeting or costume party or something. Now I think so, you're now I think you're thinking of a Fast and Furious movie, Adam. <laughs> maybe I am. <laughs> but I'm gonna say ignorance is actually probably bliss here. It's probably to the movie's advantage for me that I didn't care at all about all of the ways it referenced or connected to other Bond films, other Craig films specifically. I wasn't caught up on that because any reference probably sailed right past me. So To answer your question, I can only go back to what we discussed during our recent revisit of Casino Royale on the show. I think the mission has been, and the contradiction here is part of what makes Craig such a great bond and what makes these films overall very good. It's to give us the most deadly, dangerous, destructive bond, the blunt instrument that Judy Dench's M accuses him of being, And someone who isn't an object at all, but is the most human, the most vulnerable, the most wounded, the most woundable. And as you know, I have not seen all of the Bond films, but going off the ones I have seen, if Bond was ever in a situation where, you know, he had to put a gun down to save his romantic interest life, it's not as if as a viewer, I ever really bought that Bond was truly motivated by love or emotion. It's more that the plot required it. But then I think about the interrogation scene in Casino Royale with Mads Mikkelsen with Vesper in the other room and they're doing God knows what to her. You get Bond as a man who can physically withstand the torture and who appears truly unbreakable, completely unwilling to compromise no matter what threats are made against him or Vesper. And you fully sense that the thought of Vesper being hurt or being killed would wreck him. And that he embodies that contradiction is what makes Craig's Bond, I think, such a thrilling character. And if I was going to express the mission another way, I'd say the aim was to focus on character. Maybe not over stunning action set pieces, but over gadgets or some of the other cliches that some previous Bond films have embraced. So where does that leave us with No Time to Die? Does it satisfactorily complete the mission, as you ask? Well, if you accept my take on the mission, this film undeniably brings Bond along to his logical end. 
his relationship with Leia Seydoux's character, having to forgive Vesper and himself, his friendship with Felix Leiter, having to accept that the clock is ticking on him and his time is 007. There's a couple surprises in there as well, I won't mention, that support my case. I'd say it's a completely appropriate and perhaps even necessary conclusion to Craig's run. And yeah, I liked it, Josh. What about you? Yeah, I did like it. And I think this is where it had to go from, as you said, from where they started, it was going to end up here. Um, I think it, some of those films were more of a slog than others in that in choosing this direction, they also choose to embrace a certain grimness that over five movies became, you know, on occasion, a little overbearing. Um, but I'm very surprised to hear you come to this kind of conclusion and not really having any sort of connection to Spectre. I didn't revisit mm-hmm. it either. I did revisit, as I said, the plot synopsis just because I I wanted, when I knew Lea Sedu was going to be in this again, I, I was like, who is she again? Basically, it's like, I wanted to know that. Um, and that, ha- that had to be crucial to the character development, you know, is, is being able to make that connection to why the similar psychological torture he undergoes in this movie um is so scarring to him because it, it is very much a bookend, as you said, to Casino Royale. I still think Casino Royale is a much better movie. Um, I do as well. But yeah, it's 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 interesting that it was as effective for you without seeing, because I'm not really talking about references so much or even plot points, but just that um, this is a part two to a story. And so all of those character nuances were built Inspector, and, and I do remember from Spectre, it's probably the one of his five that I like the least, actually. Um, so it's not to me that so much was successful there, but just that a lot of what was built up there comes to fruition here. Um, mm-hmm. But the but the main point is that um, yeah, Bond had to Bond had to end in this place. We will get to some spoiler talk um, to sp- talk about specifically where he ends. But in general, I think we can say uh, he he's brought to a place. Um, I mean, he's really domesticated. They have domesticated this character. And I think that is um, an interesting move to make. It's something we talked about the trickiness of Casino Royale, where they acknowledged um, the womanizing aspect, the misogynistic aspects of this character, and um, in a way tweaked it into the psychology so that it wasn't like they were ignoring that aspect of the character, but they were also finding ways for it to be, as you said, believable, more human drama. Um, and that's was kind of stepping towards, I mean, think taming him in ways that this movie really does. Mm-hmm. And, and all that is to say is I, I think this had to be a stronger conclusion. Craig's run had to be a strong, stronger conclusion to this character than any of the others. I don't see how this particular bond could have just, you know, disappeared off into another mission um, mm-hmm. and appeared with a new face the next time. There had to be something right. more definitive. And yeah. so I think it's to the movie's credit that uh, that it does that. I like the move they made. I do think, and the reason this was not as effective for me as Casino Royale, is that it is so aware of all those connections. And here's maybe why you enjoyed it more, because you weren't. And it it was so insistent on tying them together that it kind of forgets 
for significant portions of its significant running time to be a Bond film. And it becomes a little, um, the self-awareness, not in a jokey way, but the awareness of the burden they had put on themselves by making this Bond the way he is became a little suffocating for me in watching this particular film. And I think that's maybe one of the ways it falls short. I don't know if this is a really great Bond movie. I think it's a, I think it's a strong ending to the Craig run, Mm -hmm. but for me, I don't know if it's a great Bond movie, if that distinction makes sense. Yeah, it, it sort of does. I mean, I think that there are examples here where when the movie is at its most self-referential, it's not that successful. And we talked about with Casino Royale and even in our bonus content for our Patreon members, when we discussed Goldeneye, we mentioned that there were some clever spins on the Bond mythos and some of the classic tropes and deliveries of lines and the way especially Casino Royale subverts a lot of our expectations is really where a lot of the joy of that movie comes from. And then you get moments here like the one where he does the Bond, James Bond, but it's totally just a gag and kind of a dumb joke. Yeah. As opposed to the one instance we talked about in a previous conversation where it feels completely natural, but does underline yet another way the movie is playing with those expectations. Here, it's it's a joke, and it's not even a very effective one. And there are some other nods to classic Bond films that feel kind of hollow here. I mean, we get the Aston Martin again. We get the the classic open with music that we don't get. I don't even know what we call those sequences. The one where, of course, he walks across the, the screen and then turns and shoots at us, the viewer. We get that here. I don't think we get that in Casino Royale, as I recall, again, playing with those expectations here. Some of those nods are, as I said, kind of ineffective, Josh. But one of the things that is effective still is Craig. You talked about how he's a tamer, more domesticated Bond, but actually what I really love about Craig's portrayal of Bond, and it's funny because we started off referencing the MCU, and here I am going to reference a line from the MCU, but watching this film in particular reminded me of Banner's line as the Hulk, where he says something about how the secret is he's always angry. Mm. Well, Craig's bond to me is is really always angry. That's his his natural state is to be rage filled. And the way the fury unleashes is where all the real intensity comes from. It feels totally like his natural state. It feels like even though he wants to be happy, quote unquote, and we maybe as viewers even kind of like the idea of Bond being happy. It's really when he finally unleashes the fury that you go, oh, no, this is. This is who he is. This is this is who he's really meant to be. There's there's a real relish to the way Craig plays those scenes. And that is all totally on display in one of my favorite moments, which comes early on. I think probably the first maybe 45 minutes or so of this film are the strongest in terms of just the storytelling and the filmmaking and this and the performances. And this combines all of that. It is when he is in the car with Lea Seydoux's Madeline and they're being pursued um, by henchmen. And the levels of tension going on in the scene, I don't want to spoil it, so I'll just say um, they are at odds in this moment. So he's angry with her for a particular reason. He is angry, as you said, his default mode whenever he's 
working, <laughs> you know, whenever he's spot doing spy stuff is pissed off. Um, and you see that on Craig's face and there's a wonderful sequence where they're cornered in this square in this Italian village. Uh, the bad guys are all around him firing on the car, which is, you know, protected to a degree. And Craig just sits there, lets the bullets hammer the car, lets her look at him in extreme distress and he just simmers. And that's, that's what it is. That is his interpretation. Uh, it's, he's cool under pressure. He's lethal. We know something is coming and there's that irrepressible anger that's at the bottom of all of it. So Craig is, you know, as good as he's been in this run, in this film, I think the way he embraces what the movie is asking him to do as the logical end to this envisioning of the character, Craig is fantastic. And I think, you know, I think the director, uh, Carrie Joji Fukunaga is uh, has a really strong sense of space and camera placement in that opening sequence, the extended mm-hmm. car chasement, and just incorporating shots of like the bells of a church at the right time mm-hmm. in between the gunfire. Um, this is a really handsome movie throughout, um, and I think Fukunaga can should get a lot of credit for that. Um, and the other. Maybe my favorite part, as I said, I saw this a second time, and it's always interesting to just kind of, without preparing yourself, just as you settle into the theater and the movie starts going, to think about what moment you start anticipating the most. You know, if it's a movie that you previously enjoyed. Mm-hmm. And for me, it was the entire Cuba section with Ana de oh, Armas. It, yeah, that it is has to be. such a blast, and it perfectly combines these aspects of Craig's Bond that we've been talking about, the anger, but it also gives him a chance to be a little bit of the Bond show-off of his skills, the cockiness, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. that's that's crucial too. And I think Craig holds that quality of this character a little differently than the previous Bonds. Um, it's it's sort of like there's a cockiness, but he's still the blunt instrument. And Anna de Armas is just a delight as this, she presents herself as like this neophyte contact he's supposed to work with who doesn't really know what she's doing. She's very nervous, wide-eyed. Um, what I, what I wrote about, I described her as like a wobbly baby deer as 007 in, mm. in these heels and this dress. And I loved how she worked, not just as like the, you know, the, the slinky female assassin when it turns out she's more capable than she was pretending to be. I love how she worked as comic relief, how they work together. Absolutely. It's just such a delight. That That is like maybe the most traditional Bond moment um, in the movie, harken, harkening back to some of those, you know, earlier films that we had seen. And um, yeah, I said the first hour is really strong, but I think this is this is up there with it, that Cuba section. Yeah, I agree completely. I think my favorite single shot in the film, though, and it's one I can't give away too many details about, but there is a moment where we get a shot from under the water, and I think Craig is swimming away from some wreckage, and we have fire surrounding him, and it seems like this beautiful hellscape, like something out of a painting. And there are moments like that in this film where you can tell they've they've really taken a lot of effort to create some compositions like that. I do want to go back to where we started, though, and say that even though... I ultimately appreciate and found it satisfying the way the movie closes out that Craig mission. It's funny that some of the more humanizing moments in the film are maybe the scenes that work the least for me. I think that there are a lot of 
romantic pronouncements that take place between Craig and Seydu that just completely fall flat. Mm. There are a bunch of other examples I could give. Again, unfortunately, they would be spoilers, but I'll give you one more or at least dance around it. There's a scene where that rage is supposed to come out, but it's rage that is tied to something deeply, deeply personal within him where he has to do something that a double O, an agent of Her Majesty's Secret Service should not do. He should be able to control himself. And everything about it feels false. For some reason, everything to me about that moment, this is the one that takes place in a prison. I'll leave it at that. Everything about it felt like a plot necessity. Mm, Okay. Which is where I struggled, I guess. You just don't completely buy those Craig emotional moments. And I can't tell what's completely off here because as we both said we love craig as bond but i felt that way several times throughout the movie did you have a similar reaction um i can see what you're talking about in that particular scene i think that scene sets itself up to fail because it is so modeled after the lector sequences in the silence of the lambs you know sure. that it consciously modeled that all you're thinking about is how um unnerving those were and this is obviously not going to live up and i think the the emotional moments you're talking about suffer uh, because of that the craig and say i do know um that you know a lot of people have complained about the lack of chemistry between them i I'm kind of in the middle in it. I don't see that there, you know, that there's nothing there, but I also do not find them uh, having the sort of connection that, you know, you felt, mm-hmm. say, in Casino Royale with, with Craig and Eva Green. So, oh, yeah. um, so it certainly pales in comparison to that. But yeah, I think I think I can see what you're saying. And, and a couple of other things that held me back, too, we should talk about Lashana Lynch, who inherits the title here of 007 because Bond has retired. And I knew that going in, was excited to see what they would do with that character. I've seen Lynch and other things, and she's, you know, an incredibly arresting performer. And I have to say, uh, you know, it's not on her and it's not on the fact that she doesn't get screen time because they give her a fair amount of screen time, but really nothing to do while she's on the screen. And if you think about it, really her two big moments, she shows up in Cuba and there's another moment during a car chase um, in, in the forest. Both of those instances really just demonstrate how she's failed as an agent. But the movie seems to want us to think she's like this kick-ass new blood, you know, who's going to take Bond into a new uh, a new era, yet what it actually gives her to do does not demonstrate that. So I think she was really underserved um, in that part. And we should probably talk about Malik as the villain, too. And I'd love to hear what you thought of him. Well, I'll start with Lynch first. I think you're right that the movie wants to have it both ways, which is to introduce her as a worthy successor to Bond, while at the same time not allowing Bond to completely be upstaged by her. And I guess I would say, I think it mostly worked, or it worked a little bit more than you did, though I do completely understand what you're saying. There's one scene in particular where she definitely comes out on the losing end, but then they give her a beat where she kind of has to work out her own ingenious escape. Yeah. And I like that touch. And there is some really nice banter between them as well, especially early on. And maybe it would have benefited from a little bit more of that, but not knowing that she was going to appear, not knowing the character that she played. And I did scan a couple reviews real quick to see if this is something people were just acknowledging and it wasn't a spoiler. And I guess it's not a spoiler. So I'll say it. 
the moment where we find out, and I can't recall, Josh, does someone else say it or does she actually say it to kind of irritate him? When we find out that she's 007, I didn't realize I had as much invested in this series as I did, having rewatched a bunch of them and gone through this mini marathon we did for bonus content for our family members, because I almost gasped out loud. You were shocked. I did. Like, shocked. I, I genuinely was like, what? I mean, I know they retired him, but but he's not 007 anymore. And actually, what I liked about it, too, I mean, we talked about with Goldeneye, how they finally acknowledged the time that they were making this Bond movie, the era in which Bond is now trying to exist in the mid-90s, and you have M openly calling him out as a misogynist. Well, here, I mean, he's actually been replaced. The old white dinosaur, you know, has now been replaced by someone who could not be more the opposite of him. Sure. And that... That did work for me. Yeah, I guess I just feel like all that work was done in the casting. And then when it came to like, okay, what are we going to do with that idea? The movie pretty much completely whiffed for me on it. And I do think it's the first time she meets him in Jamaica where I, I think she throws that at his face. And mm-hmm. those are probably, you're right, their best scenes together. The early ones where she's, you know, deceiving him. She's kind of undercover and and plays to his vanity in a way to disarm him. I think those work better. And then the movie kind of um, just knows it has to have her along and doesn't quite mm-hmm. know what it wants her to do. Yeah, I think that's fair. Now, it is funny that while you and a lot of other people, it seems, watching this film were noticing all of the connections and the way it was tying up some of these loose ends, I got an email or I got a text from two different listeners who noted how funny it is that the Bond film, this Bond film, references the most is the one we didn't see as part of our mini marathon, and in fact, kind of talked ourselves out of reviewing, and that's on Her Majesty's Secret Service. And when I wrote back to one of those listeners, Brett Merriman, out in LA, I said, and I'm really glad that I hadn't seen it, because I just don't want to be watching this film and thinking about it almost like source material. You know, to whatever extent it was, I would not want to be cataloging all the ways they're riffing on on Her Majesty's Secret Service. And to that, He replied, for whatever it's worth, sure, but I liked how they weren't hollow fan service moments, but built up the canon. That's Brett Merriman's take on that. So really kind of threw that in just to acknowledge that if you're one of those people who knows the Bond films very well and you were watching this film the whole time going, oh, I know what they're doing there. I know what that's a reference to. And they're going back to the Lazenby that was lost on me and surely lost on you, Josh, but not lost on all of our listeners and at least one of them actually appreciated it. I don't know if that's true of everyone who saw the film. Yeah, and I should clarify, it's not necessarily the references in terms of characters or plot or lines or even locations, um, you know, Jamaica playing a a part in this film that I'm talking about. It's more the self-awareness to the grim suffering that Bond has been enduring throughout this series. That Mm -hmm. is what this movie, to me, kind of had on its shoulders. And I think it's especially apparent in the final third, which is set on the villain's island. We do get a layer. We get a villainous layer here. Oh, man. Um, it's not bad. Um, but I do think even that, you know, the pieces are there for a Bond movie, but they're kind of to the side as we watch this particular Bond be tortured in psychological ways that, it, yes, has been a strength of 
the series, but I feel like it gave itself over so wholly to that in the ending. Um, and it even draws in, we can talk about Ma- Malik here as the villain. It, it kind of, do you we, know, do we have to, well, you know, I don't think the performance is good, but I I think he's also set up to fail a bit because so many psychological um, implications are, again, burdened on top of this character. He yeah. can't just be, you know, wanting to unleash a super weapon on the world. He does, but he also has, you know, multiple reasons related to some of these other characters going back to previous plots, but also not just plots, speaking to the psychology you know, we get another sort of dialogue here between Bond and the villain and how they're alike. And then, you know, they're mm-hmm. the same men. And, and this is sort of that's sort of the suffocating element that I felt when this movie should have been building up to this, you know, grand climax. It kind of felt like it was still trudging through it for mm-hmm. me. And I and for me, the main, the other issue I had with Malik's performance is that he seems very much almost trying to channel various um, ostentatious Bond villains of the past, but he, it's not even that he's trying to challenge them. It's almost like they're all in the back of his mind and and he doesn't know what to do with all that knowledge in his head. And it just kind of results in this, in an extremely affected performance. And I know that's nothing new. Um, you know, Javier Bardem, as you mentioned, uh, in, in Skyfall did something similar, but I found it a little more entertaining there. Um, and, and here it just didn't work for me at all. Yeah. I know I made kind of a, Starkey comment there. I can't get too worked up about Malik either way watching this. I think it's more about the role and all of the burdens you described than it is particular choices I think he's making. Maybe I went in thinking he would be even more affected than he is. And he was surprisingly subtle to me. But overall, as a performance, it's not going to be one of the villains I ever look back on with any kind of fondness or single out when I'm talking about Bond films. It is funny you mentioned The Lair. Were you thinking about The Spy Who Loved Me a lot at the end of that, even when they oh, yeah. they come they come via water right. and we get the workers everywhere? I was having flashbacks of our conversation yes. where I'm like, who who takes the job in the poison pool? Like, what are what are the benefits like? You know, jumpsuits. They had matching jumpsuits, hazmat yeah, I mean, how, suits. I guess. How desperate for work do you have to be to to take that gig? It just it just seems like it's not going to be very rewarding to me. Well, our theory for for the spy love me was that it's essentially a cult, and I think they nod to something like that here. You notice when Rami Malek like walks through the hall, they all kind of back away and and are yeah. subservient yeah. and bow to him, but they don't ever really follow that through. And, and I think no. it's yeah, I, I don't think that's very successful either. Now, should we should we move to spoiler and talk about what happens in that layer in the very final sure. moments of of okay. a film? Give listeners a warning. Well, let's let's do our proper ending. We'll say No Time to Die is currently playing in wide release. If you've seen it and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. And with that, you have your warning. You are now entering spoiler territory. What do you want to dish on, Josh? I mean, they killed him. They is, killed James Bond. Is that so so here's my question about that. Um do you feel we both kind of agree that the direction the series has gone, we've appreciated the place they take this character in this film. We appreciated. Mm-hmm. Does that include the killing of bond for you? Yeah. Yeah, it absolutely does. I mean, especially when you talk about 
using the phrase I use, and I think you used it as well, taking this whole series of films with Craig anyway, and taking Craig's Bond to its logical end, we really get an end here. We get that sense of true mortality. I alluded to it in terms of him kind of coming to terms with his age, that he's not 007 anymore and everything that that entails. And for him to confront that humanity, well, what is more human than mortality? What is more human than you're not the superhero type spy who can just continue regenerating or survive any situation somehow you'll always come through in this scenario he dies there's no coming back and that added touch of him making the choice to die you could say that maybe he could have gotten out of there maybe he couldn't because he was pretty injured but he decides to basically give it up because it's not worth it to him. At least this is how I read it, unless there's some other reading, Josh. It's not worth it to him to try to go on living or to continue a life where he can't be a human. He can't be a man who's going to touch his child. And that's actually maybe the the bigger surprise even. No, it's not. But I was going to say, it's almost bigger than Bond dying is that like, Bond is a dad. Yeah. You know, like Bond standing there in the kitchen making breakfast. Well, the, like, yeah. what is happening? This goes to my world? domestication reference. Exactly. Right? It's, yeah. Um, yeah, for me, it's just too much. It's just, you it's, think so? yeah, I think it's laying, I, it's laying it on way too thickly. I'm not saying I needed, you know, a happy ending where they're now back in that Italian village and they have their little moppet, you know, bouncing on their laps. Um, but... I think I think what it does is and I guess this is okay but it's almost like apologizing too much for who Bond was before which is has been an element of this as we noted when we talked about Goldeneye it started with the Brosnan Bond right is is beginning to acknowledge the faults in the character and I just feel like really you need to execute him too like that's and not not that like I'm offended that Bond is is dead, but more like they're pushing their point a little too far. In this final film, we're really going to, yes, finally give him after they separate because he thinks there's been another betrayal, but really give him rock solid relationship stronger than he's ever had before with Madeline. Okay, now we're also going to give him a kid. <laughs> As you said, he's going to be making breakfast. But now we also have to like actively punish him for all of his decades of sins by executing him. It just felt like a one step too much in terms of um, trying to push, trying to trying to both like punish and redeem Bond at once, because then it's sort of this heroic savior. Mm-hmm. Uh, gesture as well, as you said. You know, he's saving the entire world again, but this time it's going to require his own death. And um, I think I think it was just a little bit much for me. Yeah, I see that. Though, as I expressed in a lot more words a few moments ago, it goes back to your setup question. I think if the mission was to make him mortal then this is the only way they could end it. Yeah. That's the only way you can make Bond truly mortal. And so on that level, I appreciate it. Now, it's funny, the experience of being a moviegoer, and I suppose being a critic, where we love to applaud, or at least I often do, applaud films for taking chances, making bold steps, surprising us. 
again, subverting expectations, maybe even angering audiences. I usually go for that, but I'm not going to lie. My initial reaction to it in the theater was like, how dare they? Really? <laughs> yeah. Sounds like you were emotion- it, it, more emotionally invested in uh, James Bond than, uh, than you realized. That is what I'm saying. I think that that is the case more than I realized, right? Having watched these films, having gone on this journey with Craig, even though I didn't revisit Spectre and Skyfall, and as I said, can't remember them at all, I just felt invested enough from Casino Royale, Quantum of Solace, and now this film that my initial reaction was, how dare you not give Bond <laughs> the the happy domestic life he seems to crave? I mean, this is at least the second time in these five films where he's retired. There's maybe another retirement, but this is retirement, these two that I'm speaking of, based on a desire to just get away from it all yeah. with the woman he loves. It's it's all he seems to want the most in life, and yet he gets denied again, Josh. Your your comment brings us back to the MCU, because I remember we talked about how we were both a little surprised, I think, when it came to Endgame, yes. that we had, you know that sort of emotional attachment to those characters. Can't say I have that with Bond. I, I, <laughs> as much as I really love Craig's interpretation, I haven't developed that sort of attachment over these last, what, 10 or 15 years or so. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there, it's a little, it's kind of like the ending of Infinity War, actually, where, yeah, um, they killed off a number of characters, but you also knew that wasn't really the end. And in a similar case here, like we're going to get another bond. We're gonna, sure. it, is, it is at once this grand, like audacious gesture that, you know, if you step back, doesn't really mean a thing. Yeah, I suppose, though, I still would argue because I'm that invested, obviously, Josh, emotionally invested. I still argue that there's some weight to us knowing that we're never going to see Craig again. And I know we knew that in theory, going into the movie, but coming out, knowing that that's, that's really the case, or at least it should be the case, because I hope they're not going to do some prequels or whatever. Oh, boy. I, I still think overall it was, it was pretty effective. It worked on me. It, it, it put me through the gauntlet for, I don't know, at least two minutes walking out of the theater, Josh. What more can you ask for from a Bond spectacle? Again, we'd love to know your thoughts about the movie, our review, do you like seeing Bond as a dad? What bedtime stories would he read? Are you still <laughs> mad that they killed him? Feedback at filmspotting.net. After the break, we head to 1996, the Pierce Brosnan Bond era, actually. We're going to continue our Jane Campion overview and discuss the portrait of a lady, plus results of the film spotting poll asking listeners to pick Ridley Scott's third best movie. Stay with us.
may not always love you But long as there are stars above you You never need to doubt it I don't recall that Brian Wilson remix of God Only Knows. Josh, what in the hell is going on with this Lamb movie? Oh, oh, so much, Adam. So much. And you would care for none of it, I don't think. Really? (laughs) That was from the trailer for Lamb, the directing debut of Valdemar Johansson. Numi Rapaz stars, we know her from Ridley Scott's Prometheus and Alien Covenant movies, and also the Swedish adaptations of The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo movies. Rapaz and Hilmer Snare Gunnison are Maria and Ingvar. They live on a farm. They're raising sheep and goats, you know, as you do in Iceland. And then one day they discover a half lamb, half human, newborn. Some might call it a manimal. I just, I just love watching you read this stuff, Adam. And let's go with <laughs> let's go with childmo. Okay. Okay. This is an A twenty four production, and apparently the marketing paid off because people went to see Lamb on its opening weekend. It made over a million dollars in limited release. You, Josh, contributed to that box office haul, and you liked it. So tell me. What is going on? Well, I need. I feel like I need to come to poor little Lamb's defense. I've seen a lot of. I'm glad people saw it, but there's been a lot of sort of snarking about it and debate, of course, whether this is horror or something else. I did like it quite a bit, and I got to say, despite the giggling we've already done, the reason this movie works for me is because it is deadly serious throughout its running time. That's not to say it's it's not aware of the potential ridiculousness. It doesn't provide moments that allow the audience, if they feel so inclined, to laugh. There might be even something you could qualify as a joke here. But for the most part, this is like, you know I really like slow dread, slow boil horror. This is super slow. Just kind of capturing the motions of this couple's day for much of the beginning um, as they work together on this farm. But the the framing just the camera work, the backdrops here. I don't, did you, was Rams part of our Nordic marathon, Mm -hmm. Adam? Okay. So, so you probably remember then those amazing Icelandic landscapes that are kind of like spooky, out of place, out of time. But that also involved two brothers who um, had sheep on a farm. And it has a lot of the similar landscapes that I just love getting lost in. And the movie kind of becomes this slowly haunting folktale fairy tale. I do consider it horror because of where it ends up. I think it has some really interesting things to say about why do we let some animals into our house? Why do we keep some in pens? How do we make those choices? What are the repercussions of the choices we make? I found it to be really creepy, incredibly well-made. The acting is strong, even though they're asked to give very stone-faced performances. And yeah, to the people who saw it and pretty much laughed, uh, that would be easy to do. And if that helps you to enjoy it, I guess go ahead, have at it. But I think there is also something much richer to experience. And you can still giggle here and there. I laughed out loud at one point. That's okay. But yeah, I I think this is a movie that's uh, deserving of a lot of attention. If what we've described is at all interesting to you, you should check it out. So if I'm to trust A24 horror movies, lambs, goats, just stay away from farms. Not good, Adam. Nothing good happens there. I agree. Lamb is currently playing in limited release. If you see it and agree or disagree with Josh's thoughts, you can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. Next week, Josh, it 
was shaping up to be a huge show because the powers that be in the movie world decided to release The French Dispatch and Dune, two movies we are highly anticipating on the same weekend, that being October 22nd. But that blockbuster pairing isn't going to happen, at least for us. Now, you have seen both films, and if you did the show with another co-host, you could do that episode. But alas, you're stuck with me, and I am not going to get to the French Dispatch before it opens. I am currently slated to get to Dune before it opens, which means I think next week's show is going to be Dune, and we'll go to the next movie in our Jane Campion oeuvre review, Holy Smoke, and we'll have to put Wes Anderson and the French Dispatch off for a week. Totally fine. I, I will say this about both films. They both deserve their own show. Absolutely. And I will be very glad to hopefully get a second chance to watch The Fridge Dispatch because it is packed. It is jam packed. And yeah, that'll that'll only be helpful to me. So yeah, I can't wait to talk about both of them. Now, of course, I don't want you to tell me and you wouldn't tell me now, but do you feel very secure and where you have placed The French Dispatch in your Wes Anderson rankings? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I will also say my expectations of it, which I talked about a little bit here on the show before, it pretty much met what I expected. And so that makes me confident in kind of my overall reaction. But as I said, it's so jam-packed that what I want to do is like get a chance to catch more details and some of the specific choices that were made and just the like, how did they do that? Because there's a Mm -hmm. lot of like, wait a minute, how did they create what I just saw going on in that movie? Got it. Next week, we are also going to get to Massacre Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene from a movie and you get a chance at winning a film spotting t-shirt. In case you missed it, here's a bit of our last Massacre. Oh my God, why are you so mad at me? Because this is not an opera. What? I said this is not an opera. You think I think this is an opera? Yes. You think I think this is dramatic? I think you're very young. Well, we knew we truly massacred that scene. And I don't know if our bad acting is to blame or the fact that not a lot of people actually saw this movie, Josh, because the film spotting hat right now, there's a lot of there's a lot of empty space. Do you do you want to guess how many entries we have? Oh, no. Correct entries for Massacre Theater. Are we looking at a record low here? Possibly. Uh, 20. Do we have 20? We have six. Oh, wow. Well, we got to give a clue. What sort of clue could we give besides, uh, let's just say it's know. related to our overview. Yeah. Okay. And our conversation specifically last week about the piano. Oh, well, we're just, okay. That's putting it out there. <laughs> There's a lot of places you could go. But it sounds like it sounds like listeners need the help. So there yeah, you are. They do. If you know what film we massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotty.net. The deadline is Monday, October 18th, and the winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced on next week's show. Last week, in addition to Massacre Theater, we had a giveaway for F9, The Fast Saga. It's available now, 4K, UHD, Blu-ray, and digital with a never-before-seen director's cut and all new bonus content. And we asked our listeners to... Share their thoughts on Vin Diesel, not as it pertains to his performance in any of the Fast Saga films. Rather, we were curious if you have a favorite Vin Diesel performance outside of the series. We picked five winners at random, Josh. Here were their picks. 
Robert Gibbons from Kaysville, Utah said three words. I am Groot. I, I, knew we'd get, I knew we'd get a lot of Groot votes here. Actually, here's another one from Michael Thomas. My favorite non-Fast and Furious Vin Diesel role is Baby Groot in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. Not only did he deliver the line, I am Groot, with subtlety, finesse, and a slight growl in Guardians 1, but he performed Baby Groot in a higher pitch and with little audio processing. Even though Vin Diesel has washboard abs, he can still perform a semi-cartoon character. Okay. A lot of range there with Vin. We also got this from Zach Anderson in Kokato, Minnesota. He says, Boiler Room. And Jared R. in Springfield, Missouri says, Saving Private Ryan. Our last winner is Keith Hook Up the Dow Moser from Allentown, Pennsylvania. Favorite Vin Diesel performance has to be the titular Iron Giant, but an honorable mention should be given to the unseen by me Lumet film Find Me Guilty. I've heard great things and always wanted to check it out, but I just haven't found the time in the past 15 years. Okay, so he's going with a pick that he hasn't seen. I can appreciate that, Keith. At least you're, <laughs> you're, you're willing to acknowledge it. Find Me Guilty, 15 years you've passed it up. So Find Me Guilty, yeah, Vin Diesel uh, kind of aiming for the Oscar, shooting for the Oscar there. Mm -hmm. And I can say this about it, that's not as horrible as it sounds. He, he actually comes off fairly well in the movie. I love that you saw Find Me Guilty, and you probably then reviewed it, didn't you? Uh, you, could probably find, you could probably find a review somewhere on my site. Okay, Larson on Film, there you go. Search for it if you've actually seen it, unlike Keith. I like his pick of the Iron Giant, though. Yeah. That might have been More where I went. Work. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Again, F9, The Fast Saga, is available now on 4K, UHD, and Blu-ray, and digital. To all of our winners, please email us, feedback at filmspotting.net, and we will set you up with your prize. Now, I love, Josh, when I find out things like this from Sam's show notes. Do we not talk enough? What's the deal here? <laughs> no, you know we don't. We can barely get this show together. <laughs> yes, I did mean to mention, and I thought, you know what? what? Save time. I'll just mention it to you now, as mm. I mentioned it to okay. listeners. Great. I'm going to write another book. And yeah, the bad news for you, Adam, is you know now you only have till I'm done with this one. You're going to have to read movies, our prayers, so that you're not two books behind. So <laughs> you might why wanna, is this? Is this a sequel? You might want to get going. No, it's oh. not a sequel. It is going to be another book incorporating theology and film studies. It's going to be appropriate enough for this month to announce it a Christian appreciation of horror. So why, after barely surviving writing one book, am I going to do this again? Well, I love the idea for one thing, and uh, I have an opportunity to work with the good folks at Brem Film. They are located as part of Fuller Seminary there in Pasadena. They have a monograph series called Real Spirituality. Actually, a uh, friend of the show, Sarah Welch Larson, her book on uh, the Alien series, Becoming Alien. She explores those films through the lens of uh, feminism and theology. That was part of their real monograph series, too. So I've been talking to them. They were looking for a book that would offer a Christian appreciation of horror, knew that uh, I'm a pretty big fan of the genre and have written about it a fair amount, actually, over at the day job, thinkchristian.net, offering defenses of horror on occasion. We, Our latest podcast, the TC Podcast, just did another episode kind of defending horror from a theological perspective. So the other great thing is not only that it was kind of set up to work with some of the folks I know at Brem Film, but they had a long lead time for me on this, which makes it possible. Um, this will hopefully be out in time for Halloween 2023. Oh, you got plenty of time. Well, yeah, it sounds like it, doesn't it? 
It does sound like it. So I'm going to get working on that and hopefully hit that deadline. At this point, what uh, what I would love are two things. If listeners who are at all interested in this, if they want to keep up with updates, news, I will link in the show notes to a sign-up page where you can just basically drop your email. I promise I won't flood you with information, but every once in a while, I'll send something out saying, here's what I'm working on. Here's where I'm at. So we will go ahead and link to that in the show notes. And the other thing is, Anybody got any good title suggestions? The working title right now is Fear Not, which I think does a good job. There are a ton of books with that title. Uh, so that's one downside. And I know our listeners in particular always have great ideas. So this is something that obviously can be in flux. It's kind of where I'm at right now, Fear Not. But I would love to hear any other suggestions. So yeah, hit me on uh, Twitter or Facebook, Larson on Film. Uh, or if you sign up for these updates and that link will provide, that'll give you a way as well to kind of connect with me. And uh, I'm going to I'm gonna try to pull this thing off. You're crazy. You know that, right? I do. I do. But I just, I love the idea so much. Mm-hmm. I've got the runway. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Okay. Well, if a listener suggests a title that you then decide to use... What what do they get? Are they going to get at least a signed copy? Oh, good. Oh, of course. They'll get that at least. Um, yeah, I'll have to think of something else as well. If, if we get a great title from somebody, mm-hmm. I will definitely reward their uh, ingeniousness. Okay. Well, best of luck on that, Josh. This week over on our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show, it's their new pairing, The Many Saints of Newark and The Godfather Part Two. Scott and Keith are joined this week by film writer Jason Bailey. He's got a new book himself called Fun City Cinema, New York City and the Movies That Made It. That comes out October 26th. The Next Picture Show crew is Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky, but they have been adding a lot of other great critics and writers into the mix recently to join their roundtable. You can hear The Next Picture Show every Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts, and more info is available at nextpictureshow.net. One way you can support our show is to join the Film Spotting family over on Patreon. For just $5 a month, here's what you get. Ad-free episodes via a dedicated RSS feed, early show downloads, live presales and discounts, a merch discount, and monthly bonus episodes. We just kind of put a cap on all of our Bond talk with our No Time to Die review, but we've been putting out a couple of bonus shows covering Bond. In September, we talked about two different Bond films, actually, in one show, 1987's The Living Daylights with Timothy Dalton and 1995's GoldenEye, starring Pierce Brosnan. Previously, we talked about The Spy Who Loved Me and From Russia with Love. So all kinds of good Bond talk waiting for you there if you do join the Film Spotting family on Patreon. But now, Adam, it's time to move on. We're done with Bond. So we've got uh, something a little different for our October bonus. Yeah, we're calling it Ask Us Anything. Send us an email with a question you want us to riff on, and we'll riff on it. We've got some great stuff so far, and I may need a little bit more time, Josh, to really prepare my thoughts for these insightful probing questions. But that bonus content is coming soon. We thank everyone who has submitted a question so far. And you know what? Even if you're not a family member, you got a question, send it over. Maybe we'll get to it on the show. We also offer our family members the opportunity to participate in our monthly trivia spotting events. We just had our October trivia spotting, trivia spotting 15. Congrats to Michael Phillips, a two-time winner as a captain. His team, in honor of Halloween, was trivia spotting versus Jason. 
Bailey, Devin, Jared, Jim, Linda, Paul, Steve, all get their very own film spotting t-shirt or they get a comp ticket to a future trivia spotting and you got nothing for it, but you won, I think for the first time, a lightning round. Um, possibly. I, I don't have any other trophies. Do we get trophies for winning lightning no. round? Uh, no, we no. don't. Okay. Well, I'll just take my pride then and uh, live with that. That's it. Yeah. Our next one is Saturday, November 6th. It will be a matinee affair, a 2 p.m. Saturday, November 6th event. And our group of captains is always amazing on trivia spotting, but I'm just saying November is star studded. It's already set. I've got so many captains, I don't even have room for them all, and a bunch of first-timers that I think our listeners and family members will be really delighted to see pop up, Josh, on Trivia Spotting. So if you want to know what all the fun's about, join us over on Patreon, patreon.com slash filmspotting. Move! Get out of there! poll time and for the current film spotting poll we're asking about ridley scott's third best film he has a couple new films coming out he being ridley scott the last duel opens this weekend curious for that also house of gucci which opens in november the consensus is that alien and blade runner in some order are his two best films but something we didn't discuss when we announced the poll is whether there is a clear favorite among those two and it came up during trivia spotting last weekend. I believe it was Michael Phillips and Scott Tobias who both said, yeah, Aliens number one, but they actually had Blade Runner at number three. Both of them favoring 1977's The Duelist, I believe, yeah, his debut. And I'm embarrassed to admit, I still haven't seen The Duelist. Yeah, but after that, I mean, we're going to have to, right? I have, to. I have not seen it either, so I felt terrible about that. There you go. A little blind spotting, perhaps, for us. Blade Runner did make the Elite Eight in this year's Film Spotting Madness, Best of the 80s. Alien will surely be a top 10 to 15 seed, I think top 10, in next year's tournament, which is the best of the 70s. And our producer, Sam, was actually able to give us a completely scientific, definite answer to this burning question in the form of a Twitter poll. Alien, it turns out, is the consensus best Ridley Scott film, 75% to 25% over on Twitter. Wow. Well, yeah. So basically if you were on Twitter, I don't know, between what, two and 5 PM central today, right. you, you were, congratulations. Decided you decided voice. it, <laughs> but I do think yeah. it was, I do think it was the correct, correct vote. Okay. I do as well. As far as that third best Ridley Scott film, man, we're really answering the important questions here on film spotting. The options we gave you were gladiator, the best picture winner for the year 2000. 2015's The Martian, Best Picture nominated, Scott nominated for Best Director, Prometheus from 2012, or 1991's Thelma and Louise, Scott also was nominated for Best Director there. Finally, if those options didn't work, you could go other. Josh, how did it come out? Prometheus rightly in last place with 7% of the vote. Other came next with 10%. The Martian received 21% of the vote. A little tighter here at the top. Thelma and Louise was in second place with 30%, but taking it with 33% of the vote was Gladiator. 
Interesting. Here's Dan Buckler in Milwaukee. He says, I'm going with the silent plurality here. These other flicks are good and all, but they don't feature Joaquin Phoenix whispering, busy little bee. Are you not entertained? Dan wants to know. Oh, you got to put a little more into that, Adam. Sorry. (laughs) Here's Shoshana Rosenbaum. I love Blade Runner and Alien, but Thelma and Louise continues to be a touchstone for women across generations. My teenage daughter and her friends watched it recently and loved it as much as I did in the 90s. Here's Justin Zimmerman. I came here expecting to click Thelma and Louise, but then I saw The Martian among the options and remembered the absolute delight I felt watching it. The Martian has the same verve, momentum, and sense of fun as a late 30s or early 40s Warner Brothers adventure flick directed by Michael Curtiz. Who knew Ridley Scott could have such a light touch? Maybe Matchstick Men hinted at it. Anyway, more like this, please, and spare us any more. The Ponderous Alien Reheats, trademark Josh Larson. Now, this also came up, this question in trivia spotting this past weekend, and there were multiple people who classified The Martian as a dad movie. Yeah. And I, I'm i still insulted. It took a lot of heat as a dad movie. Yeah, it doesn't make me feel good either. I love The Martian. I don't love Prometheus. John DeCarly no. does. He says, Prometheus has beautiful, steely cinematography, as well as big and gloriously silly ideas delivered earnestly, a 21st century forbidden planet. Thanks for the support on Prometheus. John, Jeremy B. closes us out. He says, no Black Hawk Down, American Gangster, or Matchstick Men? That's my whole Tier 2 Scott, with Martian, Prometheus, Gladiator, and etc. being my Tier 3. You missed an entire tier. Another flawed poll, Jeremy says, (laughs) with a smiley face. Thanks, Jeremy. Fair. That brings us to the latest deeply flawed film spotting poll. We're looking ahead to the new movie from director Edgar Wright. It's Last Night in Soho. That comes to theaters in a couple of weeks. And in order to ensure it was going to be a deeply flawed poll, we couldn't ask something easy like, what's the best Edgar Wright movie? Instead, we considered the way music has played such a big part in his films, going back to Shaun of the Dead Those memorable scenes scored to music from Queen, The Specials, The Smiths, Scott Pilgrim vs. The World, maybe his most loved soundtrack that has music from Beck and Frank Black and The Stones and, of course, the in-film band Sex Bob-omb. Think about Bell Bottoms by the John Spencer Blues Explosion and that great opening scene that we get in Baby Driver. And, of course, now Last Night in Soho comes along. That's set in London during the swinging 60s, so you got to figure there's some good stuff on the soundtrack. Our question then is about great movie soundtracks, specifically the best from the last decade. All the films that came out in the 2010s, Josh, you have to pick the one that you think has the best soundtrack. Let's see how much we, and by we I mean our producer Sam, screwed this one up. All right, well, sticking with the right theme, we are going to include both Baby Driver and Scott Pilgrim. So if you think right is the answer for this, you still are going to have to choose between those two. Other options, Black Panther with music from Kendrick Lamar and others, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 1. Now, as the title even indicates, it's a soundtrack that doubles as plot device. A lot of 70s cheese on that one. Inside Lewin Davis, Fare Thee Well, Please Mr. Kennedy, great stuff on that soundtrack. Steve McQueen's Lover's Rock, a very recent one from last year, includes the very memorable Janet Kay's Silly Games, a lot of reggae, dub, and disco classics there. How about Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which mined late 60s era AM radio. A favorite of yours, Adam, John Carney's Sing Street. Drive It Like You Stole It, a standout there. And one more option here, in addition to the other category, is Spider-Man 
into the Spider-Verse. I, of course, am going other, and I'm saying the Pitch Perfect trilogy. No, you're not. You're not. I mean, why not? It's probably the soundtrack I listen to the most. Certainly, I listen to more than any of the options here. Okay, well then, if that's, that is the logic I was using, so that is your answer. You do have to hmm. go with it. Because yeah, of it, all of these, for, for me, it probably would be Lover's Rock, followed closely by, man, that Tarantino soundtrack. I remember for probably a good year, year and a half after Once Upon a Time in Hollywood came out, just having that on regular rotation uh, with the, you know, including the the made up ads that were included as part mm-hmm. of it. That was so much fun. Yeah. But for me, I'm going to I'm going to go with Lover's Rock. OK. Of these, the one I probably do listen to the most is Inside Lewin Davis. But maybe the one I appreciate the most is my beloved Sing Street from John Carney. Drive it like you stole it. A lot of other great tracks that were written specifically for the movie as opposed to kind of appropriating other songs and working them in. So maybe giving it a little bonus credit for that, Josh. I'm going to go with Sing Street instead of Pitch Perfect, as much as it might pain me. We want to know your pick so far, Inside Lewin Davis and Guardians are in a tie for the lead, but Sing Street and Lovers Rock, we're doing okay. They're in a respectable tie for second, Josh. I'll take that. Okay, vote now and leave a comment at filmspotting.net. I I know it seems tasteless and ungrateful, but I can't marry him. You didn't find his proposal sufficiently attractive? It was attractive. There was one moment when I would have given my little finger to say yes. But... I think I have to begin by getting a general impression of life. Do you see? We get back to our Jane Campion overview with Nicole Kidman and Sir John Gilgood in a scene from Campion's fourth feature, The Portrait of a Lady, from 1996. We set out on this Campion retrospective in anticipation of her upcoming film, The Power of the Dog. That comes to theaters next month as well as Netflix. Portrait was Campion's follow-up to her breakthrough, the Oscar-winning The Piano, Portrait 2 was nominated for a couple of Oscars for Supporting Actress Barbara Hershey and for Best Costume Design, but it wasn't exactly the commercial or the critical triumph that the piano was. Based on Henry James' 1881 novel of the same name, it's about a young American woman, Kidman's Isabel Archer, who goes to Europe to visit family. She is pursued there by several men, including a wealthy Englishman, played by Richard E. Grant, an obsessive American, played by a young Viggo Mortensen, But as we heard in the clip, Isabel has bigger, if not very well-defined, ambitions. When she unexpectedly inherits a large fortune, she is targeted by two American expats, played by Hershey and John Malkovich, maybe at his slimiest, and that's saying something. The other notable performance worth mentioning, Martin Donovan as Isabel's sickly cousin Ralph, who also loves Isabel, but who also has hopes that she will escape the fate of other smart, ambitious young women of the time, Josh, that fate being... Marriage. This is a Jane Campion film, so there's disappointment and suffering along with a destabilizing sexuality. But I want to start with your history with this film. I can't remember. Had you seen The Portrait of a Lady before, or was this a rewatch? And if it was, how did it land for you this time in the context of our overview? 
Yeah, I would have seen this in theaters in 96, especially after all the fuss over the piano and loving that so much. And I think, uh, you know, don't have any record of this, but I think my assessment about it hopefully is a little more nuanced and observant than it was then. But my overall impression is about the same, is that loved the campianness of it mm-hmm. and the way it's it's sort of unruly for a costume drama and certainly is not your average costume drama. And that's all I think due to Campion. Although, you know, she is working with uh, screenwriter, Laura Jones, who wrote an angel at my table here, but I think there are limitations to it too. P- partly possibly due to the material. It's been a long time since I read the Henry James novel. So I can't say for sure, but I do there think there are ways that the text literalizes things that Campion in some of our other films and in moments here kind of let's play out in the undercurrents or in the nonverbal performances or in some of the imagery, it gets literalized here in a way that she just doesn't need. She's proven she just doesn't need. So that was one sort of hang up that I had at least this time around. And then I had another major one. Maybe we'll get to a little bit later. That's perhaps more interesting, but yeah, I think overall still a very good film that I appreciated though. I'm boringly, with the majority thinking that it was a bit of a come down from the piano. Hmm. It was a first time watch for me and I quite enjoyed it. And I think as you put it, it's due largely to its campionness. And I think a lot of its choices really surprised me, even though they maybe didn't in the context of this series, but as far as other costume dramas and honestly, even a campion costume drama, I don't know that I quite expected that we would get something like, the opening of this film, yeah. where we get this very anachronistic sequence where over the credits we hear voices, clearly contemporary voices that are talking about kissing and physical contact and how much they love being entwined with others and just about romance in general. The best part of a kiss, I think, is when you see that head coming towards you and you know that you're going to get kissed. That moment just before is so exquisite. And I never, ever felt the touch of another person my age. And the sensation just flew through me. I love it. I love kissing. We're addicted to that being entwined. It it makes sense in a way and makes no sense at all for this this film, a movie that is very much like a lot of her films we've talked about, very much about repression. I did really love that opening and there are a bunch of other examples we'll probably get into but i don't want to derail us i kind of do want to go back to what you said you mentioned a bigger hang-up with the movie i'm very curious to know what that hang-up is it's malkovich okay i knew it yeah i knew it he just and it's not the performance the performance is a ton of fun i I really enjoyed it and i'm going to start this complaint with with a bit of admiration how about so he he's basically playing you know this kind of slinky art collector, right? Uh, Gilbert Osmond, who entraps Isabel. And when we first meet him, I think this is, Isabel isn't even in the scene. He's talking to the Barbara Hershey character and they're kind of laying out their plot. And he sits in this chair. He collects furniture along, you know, with other kinds of art that has a a bizarre side table of a sort that he folds up to come Uh next to his head. And it seems designed for this purpose. Then he kind of just lightly falls back and lays his head against it. And then it's the sigh. It's like the effort to get to that 
exact position of leisure has exhausted him. And it's mm-hmm. just wonderful. It's just yeah. so Malkovich. It's great. Right. Here is the issue. And I think it's it's really a, an issue of casting is by this point, we know exactly who John Malkovich is going to be in a movie like this, right? I mean, mm-hmm. this is how many years after Dangerous Liaisons and, and you know, that the, there are other things he's done. And I just think that for us to, for me at least, to be a little more invest in the nuances of a story like this, I want to not immediately see him as a snake. I want to understand part of the appeal for Isabel to really abruptly in the movie's terms, after, you know, kind of two meetings with him, turn and accept marriage to him. Now, I will say that I have read some other pieces talking quite intelligently about the fact that it is exactly the fact that this character, the Malkovich character, is kind of clear about who he is and what he's doing that somehow attracts Isabel. I think that's an interesting idea, but I don't know that I saw that on screen. No, I still feel like he's putting on a display. He's putting on a display. For he's, her. Yes, yes, exactly. That's it. That that was kind of my hiccup. And again, it's not because the performance isn't enjoyable. It's just that I would rather have been a little more conflicted myself about, yeah, but he's kind of like, maybe this is the guy who could offer mm-hmm. her the life of the mind that he seems to be living in could marry her yet also give her, she talks very early on about the reason she doesn't want to marry is one of the reasons she gives is because that would limit the chances. The word chances, I think she uses Mm -hmm. that, that might come her way from who knows where. And maybe I'd like the sense that this was a guy who would still allow for chances, but all I saw was a guy who was going to ensnare her for his own purposes. Right. And that just, it, it was just kind of made it a little less involving for me. Yeah, I can see that. And I have, I suppose, a similarly conflicted reaction in that, on one hand, I am seeing him as kind of a poorer man's version of his character in Dangerous Liaisons, as I'm guessing a lot of people experience when watching this movie. On the other, it's still Malkovich being Malkovich, which is always kind of dirty fun. Of course. He is just at his own tempo all the time. He he is going to slink into that chair, just like you mentioned. <laughs> he is going to just kind of meander through the space. He's going to talk as slowly as he wants. He is just never in a hurry. And then he's going to make really interesting choices, like when he is in a confrontation with his wife, with Kidman, and he starts kind of headbutting her. Oh, yeah. Like which rubbing just his face against you, her violently. Yeah, rubbing yeah. his face against her cheek, which I'm guaranteeing you was not in the script. No. Or a choice by Campion. That was Malkovich just going for something. There's a laugh he lets out at one point that's just pure Malkovichian orneriness, if you will. And then there is this, this kind of wrinkle on the character. If you are going to go back to his Dangerous Liaison's character as an example, maybe a better example... That character is so clearly a villain. He's evil. He He's nefarious and he knows it. And he has no bones or is making no pretense about what he's after. And I do think there's a little bit of a distinction here with his character in that he might actually be more evil in that I don't think he is aware at all of how bad of a man he is. And that's kind of the conflict too, that we see with Barbara Hershey's character over the course of the movie. She seems to at least be wrestling with her badness as a person and some of the, the misguided choices she has made and the way she has hurt people. I don't think 
that Gilbert Osman believes he is ever wrong about anything, that he ever has to apologize to anyone about anything, but that he's also still fundamentally a good person in his own mind. I think he's exactly the ideal of who he should be. And in a way, as I said, it almost makes him even worse, you know, because he, he just doesn't know the depths of his kind of awfulness. Yeah. There's that interesting conversation, uh, quite late between them where he says something about how, you know, we're intertwined you and I, because we're married and, you know, it's, it's just, Something to the effect that the noble thing to do is just to honor this arrangement, right. even even as he's exploiting it at the same time for his own purposes. You are nearer to me than any other human creature, and I am nearer to you. It may be a disagreeable proximity, but it is one of our own deliberate nature. You don't like to be reminded of that, I know. But I am perfectly willing because, because I believe we should accept the consequences of our actions. And what I value most in life is the honor of the thing. So, yeah, yeah. Just not, I absolutely do not want to say this is a bad performance. I just don't know that it serves the movie as well as a, a different approach could. But I think what stands out to me are some of those things you talked about, Adam, uh, the Campion touches. It's those voices at the start. And then how about the choice after the voices, which are on a black screen to give us actual portraits yes. of ladies, but these are contemporary yes. women, you know, right. it's some in black and not white characters, not characters, some in color, just, just looking at the camera and just kind of setting up this nice idea of that. This isn't going to be a costume drama from an earlier period that is an escape as they sometimes are or oh those people so long ago they dressed beautifully but didn't they act silly uh no i the point of that i think is you know the costumes and colloquialisms and other things may have changed but the societal expectations we're kind of still living with these women you're looking at are facing similar demands on themselves because simply because they're women and i think that just kind of informs sets us up for thinking about the teas that we see or the ballroom dances that we see all of these familiar sequences from other costume dramas it kind of informs them with a different sort of backdrop and sets us up to have a different mindset so that's mm-hmm. you know distinctly campion and then we can just talk about some of the imagery i'd love to hear if there was one that stood out to you as like wow like we we would a, a different costume drama would have been maybe just too fussy to notice that or too busy with the plot to notice that i'm thinking of how frequently isabel's face is kind of bifurcated by mirrors mm-hmm. or windows yeah. blurred we get double visions a yeah. lot of double vision um which is you know thematically appropriate and that's often in passing for me one of the shots was when she comes home to the house she shares with osmond late in their marriage and we're seeing her arrive from the inside. It's, I don't know if this is Rome or Florence. I think it's Rome. And the outer doors are opened. She arrives. We know it's her because of the distinctive form of her dress, but she's almost in silhouette. And the room the camera's in is completely black. So she comes out of the bright seat. These giant doors start to close behind her and everything gets kind of blurry. And it's it's just like she's walking into a tomb. And it's that sort of evocative imagery that campion brings to something that can be you know can sometimes be pretty stuffy yeah absolutely i can give you a bunch of examples i mean i think one thing that stood out to me is there are at least three really notable examples of this in this movie and we've seen it a few other times in 
the previous films in this series. I'm just always a little bit stunned by her use of off-camera space. The number of times where she leaves the camera focused on a character in a scene. There's an example here, a very notable one with Barbara Hershey, where she is talking and then she's reacting to something, but the camera just stays on her and we don't know what she's reacting to. And again, it it would be one thing if it was just something she did in that particular scene, but she does it a few times throughout the movie, just adding this kind of air of suspense, this air of mystery to these interactions where you know that someone has has walked up. Someone is encountering the character we're looking at, but you're not totally sure who it is or what they're about to say or what they're about to do. And she'll let that camera linger on that other character. So we just take in their reaction as opposed to it being about, oh, we now have two people in a scene. Let's get to, you know, a shot reverse shot or whatever and engage them in a dialogue. We've also seen this a few times in other films. Her use of slow motion, yes. her very selective, weird use of slow motion. And I say weird only because, yeah, it's it's very subtle. It is these examples like the one where I think it's Isabel, Mrs. Osmond, and her stepdaughter, and they get in a carriage, and her stepdaughter smells the flower that she's been given, and that's in slow motion, a, a sequence that maybe no other filmmaker would think to dramatize that way because it's two people sitting in a carriage with no movement, but it does emphasize for us as a viewer the types of moments that Campion feels are the most important. Yeah, that's a beautiful one. And and it allows us the time to realize what Isabel is noticing as the stepmother. She knows the significance of that flower. She's mm-hmm. the one who gave it to her stepdaughter, Suter, played by Christian Bale, interestingly enough. And so when she sees her stepdaughter kind of turn to smell that, she knows where her true affections lie and understands the implications of all that. And so it's, yeah, it's, it's almost like, you know, there are moments in the piano like this too, where it's not a cut to slow motion. It's almost like a slide into yes. this gentle slow motion that just lets the implications of the moment kind of hang. So yeah, so much great stuff like that in this. And yeah, speaking of Bale, like so many faces. Mm-hmm. You mentioned it at the top, like what a cast. And I think, you know, for me overall, every performance is pretty strong. I don't know that every character gets as much time as we would like. That's often the case with an adaptation of, you know, a hefty novel like this. Mm-hmm. But was there a supporting character who stood out to you more than any of the others? Yeah, there absolutely was. And I think maybe it's an easy choice because he's really the hero of the story. And so it's easy to appreciate him. But It's Martin Donovan. He's so good. As Ralph. He's so good. He is so wonderful. And I think that there's something really provocative about the point the movie even makes with his character. And I am kind of jumping into spoilers, I guess, here as we get towards the end of the film. And she comes around to understanding the sacrifice that he's made for her. And her line that she says to him is something like, I had no idea the person I was supposed to be. You know, I didn't know. I didn't speak up for myself. And, and of course, that made me think of the piano. And that confession that she has somehow failed to live up to the expectations that he had for her and that she even had for herself. But it's only in her coming face to face with the fact that he did sacrifice for her that she can even acknowledge it. In other words, there's no epiphany for her. There's no reversal for her character. There's no regret without 
acknowledging what he has done for her. And she would have gone through her entire life, potentially, if she hadn't learned that. She would have just continued. And I'm not articulating it well, Josh, but what I'm trying to get at is this idea that it's only when you're faced with something like that do you really finally take stock of yourself and the choices you've made when everybody else in the movie sees it. They all see how she has changed as a character and that she's not the woman that any of them thought she would be or admired her for being. So I think that that exchange between them is one I found very potent. Yeah, it's the entire movie kind of builds up to that that encounter between them, and they're both very good in it. We should probably get to Kidman, too, because I think she's fantastic. But I'm with you. Donovan was—it's um, interesting. He's kind of the—and this is built into both the character and the performance, but he's, he's sort of the only non-controlling man that she encounters, even though the irony is, as we learned fairly early on, he is the one who convinces his father, her uncle— to give her the fortune without yeah, telling that's her. that's sacrifice. So, yep. he, so he has kind of, he has kind of um, controlled her fate by giving her absolute freedom in a way. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the tragedy that he then, then lives with. And the other thing I just love about the performance is that, yes, he's the minute we meet him, we know he's deathly ill. Malkovich has a great line about that when she says something about he's dying. And he says, like, he's been dying since I've known you. He'll outlive us all. I like that. Mm-hmm. But it's not this sort of, there is a lot of coughing, a lot of consumptive or whatever it is, coughing. Uh-huh. But he doesn't play him as only that. He kind of plays him as a little bit of a prankster, you know, mm-hmm. going back to anonymously convincing his father to give that gift. And um, he's very witty about when they discuss some of Isabel's proposals. And he's he's at once comic and tragic. He's like this fading puck figure. And the way Donovan holds that is just so wonderful. What was the logic that dictated so remarkable an act? Why do you call it remarkable? As a man, Warburton is hardly a fault. I refused him because he was too perfect. Mm. If you've really given Warburton his final answer, I'm rather glad. I don't mean I'm glad for you, and still less, of course, for him. I'm glad for myself. Are you thinking of proposing to me? What I mean is that I shall have the thrill of seeing what a young lady does who won't marry Lord Warburton. But I do think Kidman is really good here. And I, what I like about her is that even, as I said earlier, she's given dialogue that explains a lot of the text in terms of, you know, her predicament as a woman in this era and what she wants and why she doesn't want marriage. And a lot of that is on the surface. Kidman doesn't just lean on that only, you know, this is, there are a lot of subtle gestures and glances and just one of them, I think it's Viggo Mortensen after he's proposed again to her and he, and she rebuffs him and she just kind of sticks her foot out and kicks the door closed after him. And I like that little touch. I think Mm -hmm. it's a very delicate performance of little movements like that, which counteracts some of the literalness of the dialogue. Well, we haven't touched on two sequences as we were talking about camera work and some of the choices Campion makes that I think are going to have to come up again when we do our review awards and we talk about our favorite Campion moments or maybe the best scenes or moments overall. There are two contenders here, Josh. Absolutely. One I would point to is the fantasy sequence that yeah. Nicole Kidman has that while being very restrained 
ultimately it doesn't get very graphic. No clothes come off in this sequence. And yet it's pretty racy for a costume piece. And the way it's done, again, we'll use that word subtlety. She says goodbye to, I believe, is it the Vigo character or is it Martin Donovan's character? Uh, I'm not sure. It could be Richard Grant's character too. There, there are those three, three men. Show up. And all three of them are going to come back into the scene, right? But she she says goodbye to one of them and she closes the door. And then the camera just does some interesting little little maneuvers. And the next thing we know, she's engaged in a tryst on the bed with all three of these men there. There's no real noticeable cut. It's as if it just all kind of happens as if these, these three men who are clearly invading her, her mind now are actually there in the space, invading her space and are actually doing the things that she's thinking about them potentially doing to her. And just the fact that it takes you a second to even fully understand what's happening as opposed to kind of the standard, Let's look at a close-up of the character and zoom in while she starts to think in her mind about this this fantasy. No, it's as if it just kind of unfolds almost supernaturally. It's really wonderful. Yeah, that's a good word for it. Um, you're right. It's it's not only included simply because this is Campion. What other filmmaker would include a moment like this? I, I don't remember, again, if there is some sort of imagination scene like this in the book, in the novel, but even if there is probably something that would be excised immediately in the adaptation because it was, uh, you know, a little racy, but Campion includes something like this. And then you're right. It's how she does it beginning. I think it actually starts with Kidman caressing her own face. It's a close up, and you, you're starting immediately. You recognize, okay, she's going to show us that Isabel has rejected these men, but it's not because she's sexless. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, she has the desire, and this is also pure camping, going to bring like the, the excitement and danger of sexuality into it. And then we begin to understand, oh, no, she's not in the room alone. She's actually with whoever shows up first. I forget. And then wait a minute. He's here, too. And, uh-huh. you know, it's just like, yeah, it's yeah, it's wonderfully handled. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. The other one is the black and white sequence. Yeah, I think it's kind of a travel montage. It is. And. At first, when I'm jotting down my notes, I'm like, it's like a surreal newsreel, almost. Maybe something about the black and white that made me think of it in those terms. And then you know who nailed it? It's our producer, Sam. He sent me a Slack this morning, and he called it, Josh. It's it's Maya Darren. It's pure Maya sure. Darren. yeah. Everything about that sequence. I was right with the surrealism, or I was heading down the right path. But Sam said it has to be, and it's funny, I... I will admit, I have only then after that conversation with Sam, I Googled it real quick. I just Googled like Campion plus Darren, and it's not by accident. And I stopped reading very quickly because there's another film coming up in this series that I saw some links about that basically argued that there is a very clear Darren influence on this other film. So it wasn't even this movie in particular, but I think Sam's on to something as we think back on that marathon we did where we looked at some of her shorts from the the 30s, maybe the 40s, I think. There's no doubt that feels almost like a little Maya Darren movie that was plucked out and put in the middle of Portrait of a Lady. Absolutely. That that is a great idea. I I did think of the um, you know, the Bunuel Dali Unshen Andalou, which we also talked about in our Bunuel Marathon. And because of that shot of, I think they're like nuts that turn into Malkovich's lips talking, like saying something to her, right? Mm-hmm. So that made me think of Unshen Andalou. But I think, yeah, Darren is probably even a better touchdown. That's, 
Yeah, that's a great, great find. I will say in terms of my hangup, if I have one with this movie, it's how much happens to Isabel Archer versus how much, I suppose, agency she has. And if you hear that and think, well, that's that's kind of the point. She she gets married and loses all of that agency. Yes, I get that. I think I'm I'm trying to find a nuance in there that is we keep hearing about how she is changed. Everyone keeps telling us how she has changed. And I think we can look at Kidman and her performance and even her her costuming. There, there are elements of her dress. There's a certain stiffness now to her. She is hardened. One character says she's gotten colder. How about her, you, how about her hair? It goes from yeah, her the hair. Janet frame-ish frizzy red to exactly. much darker and more constrained. Yes, and that is all there. But hearing about how a character has undergone a transformation, even if you can see it, Versus actually getting to watch her transform, I think, is is the issue for me. I think that sort of once she gets married, the movie just kind of sets on this course where we're just all to understand that she has now turned and become this new this new person, this new entity that is no longer Isabel Archer. And I wish I maybe was able to actually watch that transformation. Yeah, it's interesting because we talked with an angel at my table about how often Campion chose to emphasize and give screen time to smaller moments in Janet Frame's life and left some of the major moments like uh, her book being published off screen and how yes. that was kind of a plus because it, it altered the biopic in an interesting way and in a way brought us closer to the real day-to-day experience of its main character. But I think that maybe that was a similar strategy employed here to mm-hmm. leave a lot of that transition off screen in that break. And I, I would agree with you. I don't know if it's exactly as effective and the journey overall might've been more rewarding if we saw some of the transition rather than mm-hmm. the, a hard cut from one woman essentially to the other. Yeah. yeah. Another thing I like is how often they refer to her character by name. And that may sound again, kind of obvious, Of course, they're going to refer to her by her name. And then later when she gets married, she has a new name, and that's Mrs. Osmond. But I think that this movie almost sets a record for the number of times characters refer to her by her name. It's as if it's always Isabel Archer, Isabel Archer, Isabel Archer. And you hear that so many times that it then sets up that transformation into Mrs. Osmond. And you hear Mrs. Osmond a lot, and it underlines very neatly how that character we meet in the first part of the film is her own individual. She is Isabel Archer. And once she becomes ensnared by Gilbert and she is Mrs. Osmond, nobody else in the film, Josh, until I believe the end of the movie, when she has finally regained her kind of consciousness, she has come now back down to earth and she has become an individual again, talking to Ralph. She's had that epiphany that he refers to her as Isabel, that that identity has been regained. Otherwise, the moment she becomes Mrs. Osmond, that's who she is to the world and nothing more. Yeah, and I like how the hair hair design kind of comes into play there too when she does regain that identity. There'll be a few scenes where it's a little frizzier, it's a yep. little more red than mm-hmm. that kind of deep, dark auburn that it is when she's Mrs. Osmond. Absolutely. The Portrait of a Lady is currently streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Next up is... Holy smoke. Now, Sam, he left out the exclamation point. I mean, Josh, it's holy smoke. <laughs> you know, we're Is big fans mother, of punctuation a here. Mother situation? It's a mother situation. Oh, you no. have to you have to pronounce the exclamation point. It's from 1999. Harvey Keitel is back. 
with Kate Winslet. More information about the Campion Oeuvre review, including the full lineup and where to watch the movies, is available at filmspotting.net slash Campion. And that's our show, Josh. If you want to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Letterboxd, Adam is at Filmspotting. I'm at Larson on Film. In the show archives at Filmspotting.net, you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005. You can also vote in the current Film Spotting poll. We want to know what is the best movie soundtrack, not the score, but best soundtrack since 2010. To order show t-shirts or other merch, visit Filmspotting.net slash shop. And you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter at filmspotting.net slash newsletter. Some good stuff coming out this weekend on digital. Todd Haynes' Velvet Underground documentary. That's in theaters and on Apple TV+. In limited release, Mia Hansen loves Bergman Island with Vicky Kreps and Tim Roth. The Last Duel, the latest from Ridley Scott, is out. Adam Driver, Jodie Comer, Matt Damon in that. And then if you're so inclined, getting ready for Halloween, there is Halloween Kills, David Gordon Green and... Michael Myers are back next week here on the show. We're going to talk about Dune and we will get to that fifth film in our Jane Campion overview. Film spotting is produced with Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Kat Sullivan. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board, and special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.